Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, it's Jenny Ellisku. I've spent quite a lot of time in recent years uh, on the road covering music festivals, hanging out backstage waiting for artists to show up for what turn out to be pretty brief interviews. And even in the best possible circumstances, it can be kind of generic because you've got a few minutes, you've got to ask relevant questions. I often end up asking things like, so what do you remember about your first time playing Coachella? Which, you know, Fair enough, but kind of a non-question. Anyhow, even in those situations, I've always been excited when I see that the Scottish Trio churches are going to be coming through for a chat. They are wonderful people. I love their music, and they're always up for a good laugh. So I was thrilled that Lauren Maybury, singer for the band, was willing to do this interview that you're going to hear in episode 25 of the LSQ podcast. I love her even more now that we've spent this time together. She visited with me here in L.A., and thanks to our hosts, my dear friends Nikki Robertson and Cameron Parkins, who lent us their home for this recording. Also, farther into the episode, I dug into my archive for a phone interview with PJ Harvey about her album Stories from the City, Stories from the Sea. But first, let's listen to this interview with Lauren. And where we're beginning here is we had been talking about kind of the cities she's moved around between in recent years and what it's like to be back home as well. So that's where we'll begin. Well, I guess even this morning when I was getting ready to leave the house, I was, I was uh, like making like a lunch thing to bring visitors out. Nobody used to know that part. But I was doing something in the kitchen. She and likes to bring like, her lunch. I like to brown bag stuff and use reusable water bottles. Um, <laughs> but then I was like, I wonder how many interviews we've done in like the last six years. And I was like, I have no idea. I don't know at all. Um, it's just a nice problem to have. But yeah. it's quite weird. So I guess when it comes to going home again, I guess Glasgow's the only place where we're in context all the time. Right. So... And it's, you know, it's coming from a place of, like, kindness and care about the band, which is really nice, but I've learned enough about myself to be to know that I can't live as that character all day. Because it is, like, a character to an extent. I feel like when we go out, even, like, well, yesterday we were making a video, and I'm like, well, you are in character all day because you're the representative of the band and you're doing this thing. And I don't naturally love dancing around in the middle of rooms. So I feel like yeah. that's kind of a persona switch, kind of. And then if you're... If people... Because Glasgow's a small place, you know, right. and everyone goes to the same music bars and the same shows, and um, I just know that 
I think I've gotten better at the public aspect of the job in terms of the performance stuff, but I just know that I need to hang it up at a certain point in the day. So it's been nice in a way that we've been on the road so much. And you're super in contact when you're at the show, but then wherever you stay in between tours, you're just kind of off the grid. When do you, when-ish do you, did you first get that feeling being at home where you, people knew who you were and it felt weird? Just, you were just aware that you're like, oh shit, this is something weird about this. Um, I guess, I guess it's weird. It's like lizard brain knows things that like you can sense. Things. And I think even now, like I can tell, it sounds really stupid and really like big headed, but you can, t- I can tell the difference between somebody looking at you because you've got something on your face and somebody looking at you because they like the band. There's just a slightly different, I don't know how to describe what it is, but um, yeah. And then I think, you know, Glaswegians don't have quiet voices. So there was, you can hear like, churches, and you're like, oh no. And especially because like, you know, everybody needs time to just turn their brain off. So if you're like, it would be like going to the pub with your friends or going to a show or something. And that's totally, I totally get that that's part of the job when people complain about it to a huge degree. I'm like, well, there are things that you can do. But then I think it got to a point where I just realized I wasn't doing anything anymore because I was like, well, that's part of the thing. You have to accept that if you go to those places, that's going to happen. But it's hardly like I'm going to the Ivy, you know, I'm right. going to like <laughs> yeah. a crappy pub in Glasgow. So, And I think it's an interesting insight. Like we know we've met people who are in other bands or, or actors or things like that. And it's been interesting to dip my toe into that world to see what that's like enough to know that I'm, I'm cool over here. I'm fine with what I have. I don't really like... I don't, yeah, I've been definitely like having lunch with a friend and then later been tagged in a picture of us eating salad. And I'm like, wow, imagine like, so that's a whole other level. We don't get that at all. So I was like, okay, I'm fine to not, to not be in that world. So really we're very lucky. And then I think most of the time people only know what we look like if they really like the band. So right. it is really nice. It's not that it's not, we're not grateful for it, but I think if it's just, it's a lot all the time. I think, and also I think if you start to buy into the idea of that's who you are as a person, then I think you lose your sense of what's actually real and what's normal if you know what I mean yeah so I think it's important for me to walk around in my jogging bottoms and not think think about myself as Lauren from churches in inverted commas right. so I, yeah. I think you know I can even just in my line of work I can relate to the idea of being in character um yeah because when you're out in public or just being feeling like you have to be in a kind of professional mode that isn't like it is someone other than who you normally are um, but also obviously in, in your context, there's the other layer of it is, it is a, it is a character. It is more of a real sort of entity. It has more spirit to it than like the average person just being like, well, I have to be professional in this situation. How early on in this particular project in churches, did you feel like a character, the character emerging? And I don't, what do you kind of see this, the superpowers of that character being that that you try and tap into when you're when you're in that mode. Um, I feel like it was over the course of the first record, because um, we were really really lucky with everything that happened to us. But I feel like in a lot of ways we really weren't ready for it. But then you could spend a lot of time getting ready for something and never just biting the bullet and doing it. But I think that was around the time I stopped reading anything about the band because. I don't think I was a very good live performer, but before that I'd been in bands where I was playing keyboards and being left alone. So this was the first band I'd never played an instrument in and only singing. So I was like, oh, we'll figure it out as we're going, because none of us have been to stage school. We don't know any of that stuff. But uh, understandably, a lot of people who come to those shows or people that write about those shows don't think about it like that. They compare you to things that already exist. And they were like, she's shit. 
she's insert big beep here that you can't say on the phone and I was like yeah I remember reading one that was like so scathing that I was like oh maybe I should and it's not like I was doing it and thinking I was amazing at it I was like I'm doing this I'm getting a bit better at it but it's not my definitely not my favorite thing to do like I think before that I was just playing in bands with my friends and it was more of I felt more of a collective unit rather than that you were being dangled out there to die which is what the first stretch record felt like for a lot. Because Ian and Martin were there, but like they're locked behind synth rigs. Yeah. So they can't like help in that regard. Well, taking um, well, there's just the actual physical space on a stage. You know, so then there's one person. I don't think people think about that when it's like a guitar or bass band or whatever. You, there's more motion and they're, they're physically taking up yeah, that closer space. To you. And, yeah, so uh, I don't know. I think there was a point halfway through where I was like, I really hate doing, <laughs> doing this. And it's like, I don't think I'm good at it. And then the more feedback you get about how bad you are, the more psyched out you get, I think. So it was more just that we took a bit of time. Well, we took three weeks off between the end of the first album tour and making the second record. Um, And I just kind of figured during that time, I was like, well, either way, something is going to have to give on this. I was like, if we continue the way that we are doing it, then it's probably going to get quite old for people. Because, you know, if it's a new band and people feel like they've invested in the band, there is a kind of kitsch to the whole, you know, indie DIY pop band. Like, that's fine. You can get away with that on the first record. If, and then it's like, there's something about the newness of it. Right. But if that's just how you are forever, then I think that just means that I'm not very good at it. So, right. um, and I was like, so either I'll get overwhelmed by it because I wasn't very good at all already. Did a lot of crouched down breathing and crying in toilets. So, oh, man. Well, and I was like, or other people would decide that, like, your two seconds is done because you're not stepping up. So it was kind of between the first and second records that we were like, we were lucky enough to get to make a second one, which didn't think we would get to do. So we were like, how do we actually want to do it if we do want to do it? So I'm curious whether, because it sounds like you're saying your previous like musical endeavors, you you didn't feel that like terrified, mm-hmm. like I what what's wrong? I hate I hate this. What if I hate this? Well, I it was it just the was it just the being being having it all on you as the front person? Yeah, because even in my the band, so I met Ian because he recorded my old band. But even in that band, I split the singing with another person, and I played keyboards and I played drums, and it was I guess it was the dawning realization at the end of the first Churches record where I was like, people think about think of you as a front person. So whether you like it or not, that's the role that you are in now. So why? I know that I don't think about myself in that way, but if I am there, then I have to do it in a way that feels like it's making proper use of that, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I guess, I don't know, because I met the Ian and Martin through the recording stuff, and then they just wanted somebody to sing backing vocals and play keyboards on a demo, and I was like, sure. And then it went from that to what Churches was, which is amazing, but I, I was a bit like, fuck, I, didn't, I don't know if I can do this. I have no idea. But right. you, don't, you, ne- you don't say no to that opportunity when it's handed to you, you know yeah so I think I went from thinking about myself as the side guy to then being the guy yeah and I was like oh crap and if I am gonna do it like you know I remember being a teenager and being obsessed with like Karen Ono and Shirley Manson and things like that and I was like those are the performers that I really love but I don't think about myself as being anything like them then or now but I guess I was like okay well you are we are so you need to like not squander this opportunity and just not screw it up I guess so was it just going so well working with those guys initially that it felt like it just made sense to graduate it to, to kind of turn it into instead of just being you would guest on some other thing they were doing like this is a band like 
How many songs did, did you guys start to get together before it seemed like, wait a minute, are we a band? Is this a band? Because <laughs> um, oh, they had a few, and Martin had been singing on all the original demos, right. and it didn't have a name, and I don't think the plans were to do it live. They were maybe going to put some stuff online and then try and get publishing for it or something, and then they would go and produce for other people, and that was hopefully going to be their arc. And I guess the chat was, you sing on the demos, we cut you in, you get a day rate. And I never had a day rate. And I was like, wow, what's a session musician day rate, my word. <laughs> so uh, I don't know. And I think they, it's quite, I don't know, I always feel like it's, when we're talking about it, it's like a kind of Bugs Malone showbiz story. But so Campbell, who's our manager, used to be in a band with Ian back in the day called Aerogram. So they played in the band together. And then Campbell was also a sound engineer and then was a tour manager. And he'd been talking to Ian and Martin because he'd known them for forever about how he wanted to get off the road and uh, that he wanted to go into management. So he was like, I'll help you guys, give you a few contacts. Bish, bash, bosh. So they were trying to do that. And then I think they were playing in the new demos and then everybody was kind of talking about talking about what they wanted to do. So we had a meeting in a pub, uh, which is a very professional place to have a meeting. Because <laughs> uh, Martin, I think, was DJing in the pub for like 50 quid. So it's just kind of how different it was. He couldn't take the night off, so we had to go to his DJ set to have the meeting in between him playing songs <laughs> of his computer. Um, and they were like, we wanted to just do like just do one song and then put it online and see what happens. And if that goes well, we could play a few shows. What does everybody think? And we were like, okay, like not thinking anything of it really. Um, and that's what's pretty well because everyone else we, we've been going around in different bands for years and years, really like dragging it out, especially like. Ian and Martin, they've done like maybe 20 tours of America in a van each. And that's not easy. That's hard. Oh, yeah. It's so hard. And I think, you know, Ian had got definitely gotten to a point where he was like, I don't really know if that's where I want to be anymore. So I guess that's what's kind of wild when people ask us about churches. We're like, yeah, nobody thought that was... Like, we were really pleased with the songs. We were pleased with what we were making, but we didn't know enough of it. We'd all been in bands that... I had to kind of bang on the door enough and people have been like, nah, that's not what's current. That's not what people want. So then we accidentally ended up in like the blogosphere of life. We were like, what is this? Okay. Um, and I guess I'm like, man, people say, all I listen to like these podcasts with songwriters and blah, blah. And I think you learn a lot from that. But I think if, if it was an exact science, then people could do it all the time. And I think there is just something about that last element. Like you don't know what it is. And it just connects with people for whatever reason. Maybe it wouldn't have a year before or a year after or whatever. So let's let's go back to to Baby Lauren. Um, yeah, what what was the first kind of musical urge you remember feeling, or what was the first music you ever felt drawn to in a in a powerful way? I guess my parents weren't musicians necessarily, but um, they played a lot of music in the house. So I think at the age where you're just listening to what your parents have, my dad listened to a lot of like Steely Dan and like moms and papas beach boys things like that um and my mom was she knew about the pop divas so we covered a lot of Whitney Houston covered a lot of Sade that kind of stuff um and then I guess when I got a bit older I did the whole use your pocket money to buy really crap pop singles on right. the set that kind of thing um I was pretty I was pretty into the boy bands but I was the right you know yeah listen. it's not my fault I was like I was you the age at that time born. what are you gonna do um but yeah and I think one of the first things first kind of more non-boy band, non-compilation-y type things I got was, I remember getting Tragic Kingdom on cassette in uh, in the service station, like when we were driving on a family road trip. I think it was just the cover of it I thought was really cool. And then I like looked at it and I was like, oh, that I think I heard Don't Speak 
on the radio or seen the video on TV or something. So I just got that randomly and thus began my obsession with Gwen Stefani. So so, she, so Gwen was one of the first where you felt you felt something special happening. I think so. And I remember just, and then now I guess I'm older and I can understand what I like about it so much. But I remember at the time being like, well, she's so feminine and she's so female in such a male position. But like the way that she performs is kind of masculine like when she's especially when she's doing shows I'm like I love the kind of way she's using her body like it's very like sensual at sometimes but it's always really very strong and if it was a man doing those moves it people would be like holy shit that's like Mick Jagger that's crazy yeah and I think that's something I thought a lot about in terms of performance like people I really admire like her or Hayley Williams like they're never sacrificing their femininity but it's kind of taking it and putting it on its head a bit and I think I like that because you are in those kind of bands occupying male space a lot of the time or what is deemed to be male space and I think it's about trying to figure out how to how to how to be a woman in those spaces and how to use that like I think about it sometimes because I grew up in such a male dominated environment because I was always in bands with guys I wonder I'm like yeah I wonder what like 16 17 year old me would have been like if that hadn't been for that because I don't remember thinking hugely about femininity or womanhood or any of that because I was so conscious of trying to fit in and then I think it's only as I've gotten older I've been like okay well you're in you you can be you can be here that's fine but how to have like manage both things if that makes sense and it's like kind of being trying to be a chameleon to fit in so that nobody's gonna like catch you out kind of um, yeah. not that there were, I was always in bands with really nice dudes and nice boys but um yeah it's that kind of yeah you're just trying to adapt to your environment and I think about I'm like I think I was I was like swearing more, spitting more, like trying to play play harder and faster than any of these guys because I was like, okay, I just want to be like, I just want to be allowed to fit in kind of thing. And then, you know, I was always, I never, I didn't dress in a way that was, and also I think it's up to you to define what you think is feminine or not feminine or whatever you want to do. But I think I deliberately didn't do those things because I didn't want to stand out and I didn't want to wear makeup because I just wanted to be one of the boys. I wanted to be allowed to be in the club kind of thing. Whereas now I kind of feel like when we do shows, we do kind of like mad stage makeup stuff. And then to me, that's kind of, it's meant to be a bit weird and about creativity and kind of about sticking your head above the parapet. Because whether I like it or not, everybody always writes about the fact that there's a woman in this band. So if it's going to happen, then I don't know, I'm like, why are you trying to hide certain aspects of yourself? Why not? Like, I think it's interesting that you're taught that those things are a disadvantage or taught that they're a weakness. So... When we do it now, I'm like, okay, well, those are the things that went in the performance part. I think we should enhance because it's part of the strength of it, if that makes sense. I mean, you just want it to be up to you whether to do it or not, right? Well, yeah. Not to feel obliged by... And I think it's interesting whenever I tend not to look at comments on the internet because why? Life is too short, this is awful. But it's interesting that like a lot of the people that comment on the kind of mad makeup stuff are men being like oh you'd be so much prettier if you didn't do that and i'm like then you've missed the point because that's not the the point of this isn't we spent enough time with people i think that's the interesting thing for women is that i don't know how much i'm allowed to swear on this but you can can swear as freely as possible the the grand old age of 31 i figured out them like certain men in society kind of hold this thing over you as if you should care so they deem you fuckable or not fuckable, and you're supposed that's supposed. So if you're deemed fuckable but you don't want to be fucked, then haha, screw you. 
then the other way around, they're like, oh, it's the whole ugliest girl in school thing. Like, you're not fuckable. We would never even deal with you. As if any of that is relevant to what you're doing. So I kind of feel like when my appearance has been commented on in churches, it's people talking about it as if I care what they think about it. So at this point, I'm like, nah, let's just dress up like the kind of mad Powerpuff Girl version of what teenage me would want this person in this band to be. And it's not about being pretty or not pretty or any of those things. It's about being in the band, you know? So what was your, what was your source of like new and the, like more underground music? Obviously you're, you're young enough to have come up with the internet as, as part of your world, but who was even telling you t- about Bikini Kill or that kind of thing when you were a kid? And how long after admittedly liking boy bands did the finding the cool shit happen? I guess I would, the internet, the internet happened towards like the end of high school. So I remember the sound of that AOL dial up. And then my mom being like, get off the internet to like on the phone and like leaving. I think I've only ever illegally downloaded two songs and uh, <laughs> I remember having to leave the computer on for like two days for it to happen. And I was like, come on, because I couldn't get, couldn't get them. Um, but I remember, yeah, just reading a lot of like, I had a friend at school and she would buy Kerrang and I would buy The Enemy and then we would read them and then we would swap them. And um, I think she also had Sky TV, so you could go to her house and watch like MTV2 late at night. Um, a lot of Gonzo with Zayn Lowe. But I think it was around, I think it would have been like 13, 14 was the kind of switch over. Um, yeah, I forgot for a minute there that, yeah, there's the, I mean, say what you will about NME, like to be, to grow up where you have access to a weekly publication about music it is, is pretty cool. I feel like it's definitely a really different beast now than it was then. And it is interesting to look back on it again and be like, it was like, I was kind of Britpop, just post Britpop. And like looking at that now, I think I would be like, there's nothing but white dudes on the cover of this record. Save maybe Block Party. I remember Block Party being like, being in love with them. thinking the drummer was amazing, but Kelly being a man in that position was a big deal, but people didn't really, I don't know, because every other week it was like Radiohead and Blur and all these bands that I really like, but it wasn't, it was a straight white man's game. But I remember, I think my dad bought a copy of Jagged Little Pill on CD because he wanted the, he wanted this the single. I think he wanted the Ironic or whatever. And I think he liked it to an extent, but then he was like, no, I'm not So he gave that to me and then... It was around the time of Avril Lavigne. So I remember being like, huh. And not, not as much as in now, I don't know how much I connect with a lot of this, that music. But I still maintain that first record, Flawless. And I think it made me a bit sad in hindsight to realize that some things are not what they, they seem to be in terms of like major label marketing or whatever. But ultimately I was like, yeah, that was really cool. I remember being like a teenager and looking at that and being like, she's she's just like us she's just like she's like the kid down the street but she like plays guitar and writes larger skateboard and and i do think uh yeah when people talk about i think i went through a big music snob phase when i was like 19 20 because i think you don't really know a lot about yourself then so you're trying to use these things as like armor of what you think that you should be like and you're projecting that out there so then i was like oh all pop music is terrible i'm not listening to anything other than like don caballero and that's it (laughs) And I still, I'm like, that's, I think I got a lot out of that. And it was really, the drum practices were pretty intense. Oh my but God, I'm like, Don there's Cavallero. space for all Damn. those things, you know? Yeah. I'm like, you don't need, I think that's, now I don't feel the need to box stuff off. I'm like, if I like this on this day and this later on, that's fine. 
But um, and then I was like, all oh, Avril, us all the time. <laughs> and I like just disowned Avril by the age of twenty, which is unfair. I'm like, if you love those records, you love those records. Like, good pop music is. And I was, I remember like hearing kind of the kind of start of the pop era of Taylor Swift, and I was like, this, like, we are never getting back together. Ten years before would have been an Avril Lavigne song. Yeah. For sure. I mean, so, like songs that are undeniable, or you know, you know like are if undeniable. You, if you put if you put complicated on in the pub, I'm still I'm still down. I oh still know God. every song. I still probably get teary eyed about the nostalgia of it. I know you started taking piano lessons as as a kid. Was that was, was that something? Was that your idea? Was that the parents' idea? I think it was my mom because my mom could play piano. So uh, yeah, we did a lot of scales, a lot of uh, like music exams for it and stuff. But it's kind of again, I'm like man. If I ever have a kid, I'm totally going to be that person that's like, don't give up. You're going to want this skill when you're older. Because I did that until I was about 17. And then I was like, oh, thank God I don't have to do that. And then now I'm like, maybe I could still read sheet music. I don't know. But I don't think I could play to the same level. Like now I guess we use it for writing, but the actual playing skill is probably gone. So maybe when Churches takes a break, I'll just sit down and get slightly better at piano. Yeah, it would probably <laughs> it would probably come back to you more quickly than, I hope than you so. think. Mm. And then drums at some point. Yes, I think I did. So I did piano at school and then a bit of oboe, which is kind of odd. No oh, one's, oboe. No one's playing oboe in the, in rock bands. And you're and you're a petite person and the oboe is one of your larger woodwinds, is it not? It, it requires a lot of puff. So, uh, yes, but then I think I probably disappointed my parents a lot because I begged them to let me trade it in for a crappy drum kit. So that's how that began. Um, and I just noticed in the local... Like the kids I was hanging out with, I was like, Meh. everybody plays guitar. Everybody plays guitar and everybody wants to be the singer, but nobody, there's only a couple. There was like two kids that played, played drums and they played drums in everyone's bands. And I don't know, I think, and I was like that time, really into the Fighters and obsessed with Taylor Hawkins and stuff like that. So, um, see, born to be a sideman, that's yeah. what I'm saying. I was like, <laughs> born to do like, play, I guess you can't see that because it's a podcast, but like do the ride symbol, back and vocal pose. But there's another good skill to have in your in your arsenal. Yeah, and I guess I did drums and backing vocals in bands pretty much until the band I was in when I met Ian. And then I had played drums in that band at the start, and then my friend Paul, who was the singer of the band, was like, our friend, who normally plays drums, can play keyboards in this band. And I'd seen him play enough to know that Ross was an insane drummer. Like, he had insane technical skills. He played in, like, crazy metal bands. I'd seen loads. And I was like, I don't want to play drums with him standing there. Like, that's so embarrassing. So then I think we did a rehearsal where we all swapped instruments in inverted commas. It was probably an evil plan all along to get yeah, somebody yeah. better on the drum kit. <laughs> get get off the drum. Paul says that sometimes. He's like, you owe me a pint because if it wasn't for me secretly manipulating the lineup of the band, then you would never have done any singing anyway. So it's his fault. It's Paul's fault. <laughs> Paul. <laughs> And you also, you did some music journalism or like, you know, uh, music criticism type stuff. What was that in, was that, were you in college at the time? Or? Um, yeah, it was in, towards the end of college and then just after, because um, I did an undergrad law degree and then well, um, multimedia journalism stuff, because I think my end goal, I was obsessed with like Louis Theroux and uh, any kind of documentaries, so I wanted to work for like the BBC or PBS or something. And I was like, the way that you do that is get a journalism CV, but understand the technology when you get in there. Um, and I guess the easiest thing to that seemed to get into was if you're already in a band, then you have that CV and you can just pester these people that aren't going to pay you anything, but you can write about gigs and stuff. And as a teenager, I was like, cool, I get to go to gigs for free and write about them. Woo. But I don't think I was a very good 
critic or I was a great critic. I don't know, because I was just too... I don't love the idea of kind of take... I think maybe it's different if you play music as well. I always felt oh, had a weird relationship with the idea of like critiquing other people's stuff. When did you first start writing your own songs? I guess I would write things in a notebook more than playing songs. Um, so I was more words words person first, which makes sense, I suppose, in hindsight. And we were talking about it in the van the other day that it kind of seems like the first thing that you listen to in a song as a musician is the thing that was your first love, kind of. So like, a couple, like some people I know will listen to a song and not even hear lyrics. Like they'll hear like the guitar part or the guitar melody or something first or like be obsessed with the rhythm and then they'll get to the lyrics later. Whereas for me, that's the thing that can like make or break a song. Like I hopefully understand production to a certain level, but at the end of the day, I'm like, I would rather have it sound shit and have the content of it be meaningful than the other way around. And I think that's kind of why a lot of Top 40 radio does my head in. Because I'm like, this sounds great. This vocal's got a lovely treatment, but there's that, like, these lyrics are inane and stupid and I don't understand. But ultimately, if it connects with people, then whatever. But, um, yeah, so I would just write stuff down. Tragic little poems and stuff. And then, yeah, it was only when I was maybe, like, 15... And I started playing drums, then I started writing in bands with other people. So I've never really written by myself. I don't really know. I've tried it a little bit, but I think I'm, I enjoy like kind of work bouncing off other people a little bit more than they kind of, I think for me, lyric writing is the solitary part. It's the solitude. And then the musical stuff has to be group in some way. Do you, do you get like a, a physical feeling like when you're in a, you know, when there's a song that's coming together well, is there like a, like, can you feel it when there's a good song kind of coming together? I think so. And especially with Ian and Martin, because we've done so much writing together. And that's what we got so excited about when we started, was that it felt like we were all on the same page really early. And it wasn't like half of you were and you were making concessions for the rest. Um, but yeah, I think now like we can go for like days at a time just banging our heads off a wall. But then, yeah, if you feel like you've found something, whether that's a little melodic thing or... The sounds like Ian is the most patient man in the world and he will spend hours, days like trying to just finesse the sound just so on a keyboard whereas Martin's maybe not as patient with that, he's more like get in there, get your sleeves rolled up, like mess around but yeah, everyone has their own thing that they get excited about and once you hit on it, I think, yeah there is something in it and maybe it's just like the relief where you're like, oh my god, thank god like <laughs> it's because I used to wonder, I'm like, what if there's only like a certain, you only have a certain number of good things to say or a certain number of things to write and how do you know when you've run out but I think that might be just like paranoia and it's hard to know whether sometimes it was just like time and place lightning bolt and you got that thing or like how do you turn that into like a career long do you want to be a career band and I think as much as we have these existential panics to each other we're like what is it what are we gonna do oh my god and then we're like okay we have to go make it I think once you're in it and you're making it like, you can't control any of that stuff. And I think we spend so much time trying to control everything in life, generally. I'm like, really? I don't really know what you can control. Like, sometimes we just kind of say to each other, well, all we can do is just not be pricks. Like, don't be pricks. Try not be pricks to each other. Try not be pricks to other people. You might only be here for five more minutes, so just try not be a prick while you have it. And then, who knows? Who knows? Beyond that. That's a really, that's my self-help book. It's very short. It's called Try Not To Be A Prick. <laughs> 
Well, I think that's an apt place to wrap up. Thank you so much for doing this. No, thank you for asking. We finally got to make it happen. Solid advice for life in general. Try not to be a prick. Thanks again to Lauren from Churches. She and her bandmates are playing at the Coachella Festival over the next couple of weekends. And beyond that, they've got headlining dates and other festivals around the world throughout spring and summer. So check their website and definitely get out and see them if you can. Up next in episode 25 of LSQ from my archive, it's an excerpt from a phone interview I recorded back in the year 2000 with one of my favorite artists ever, the incomparable Polly Jean Harvey. This was for an in-the-studio piece for Rolling Stone about an album she had just recently finished recording, so recently, in fact, that she hadn't chosen the album's title yet. It ended up being called Stories from the City, Stories from the Sea, and also ended up being one of my favorites in her entire catalog. I love the way she refers to part of her creative process, the part where she goes out and kind of explores whatever city she's in, as investigating. It definitely feels apt for her music, you know. Let's listen right now. PJ Harvey on LSQ. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I hear that you wrote some uh, some portion of the new songs in New York City. I did, and um, in fact, probably about three quarters of the record was written there. Right, and you were you were here when late last year or something? I was most of most of last year. I was there from let me think um, April through till the end of August, um, and I you know I went I went to New York specifically to be writing because. I'd only ever been passing through before, but I'd always had a a really kind of strong feeling that I wanted to to be there and really just sink into living there for a while. Um, So that's what I I managed to do. And, uh, it you know, it's really stimulated me creatively. How how do you think it it winds up being reflected in what you actually wrote, the, the change in setting? Well, I think coming from the countryside like I do, it's almost going to the complete opposite if you can imagine um you know sitting here now i'm looking out of my window i can see the sea i can see um pebbles on the beach mm-hmm. i can see two people <laughs> 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 and that's it that's just about it so, you know going to new york i was just i was so excited i felt like a child again almost it was mm-hmm. sort of um so much stimulation to every one of my senses. Right. You know, there's so many people and smells and languages, and um, and my eyes were just opened to so much outside of my usual circle or sphere that I live in. Right. And I think it gave me an enormous sense of perspective and, you know, just of what else is going on in the world. And um, I think in, in my writing, you know, that, that is coming across as well as much more of a feeling of um, being in the thick of living, really, right. rather than being so internal or living slightly apart, you know, of what else is going on in the world. I think being in New York, I did feel a you know, much more of a sense of um, 
I don't know, I became much more interested in news. I was reading a lot more newspapers, and it, mm -hmm. it just kind of stimulated all that part of me as well. I really did feel like uh, the center of something. Right. So, so you so the musical energy is is that you know something that's also reflects maybe the you know the the more vibrant mm. setting of of the city or definitely yeah I mean I think that the sort of yeah the vibrancy has definitely come across and the songs are a lot more well they're they're faster they're um, I don't know it's hard to describe I'd say they're 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 up higher rather than down lower. Right. I think, um, <laughs> you know, a lot of my albums I've been very interested in 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 slow and low things. Right. But this is kind of faster and higher. Where where were you where were you living when you were in New York? Well, I was um, I was on the Upper West Side um, in an eight floor apartment up there. Yeah, I was sharing with a friend, and we lived there the whole of the summer. Did you uh, go out when you were? When you were actually concentrating on writing, did you, did you, were you in the apartment, or did you sort of go out and, and you know settle yourself somewhere else in in the city and and just check out what was going on? I was a mixture, really. I mean, I tended to to do quite a lot of writing in the daytime in the apartment, and then um, nighttime, I'd you know I'd just go out investigating. Mm -hmm. I went to a lot of a lot of music, a lot of dance, a lot of art galleries, and poetry readings and everything I could lay my hands on I was investigating really right um and I mean and sometimes in the day as well yeah I'd, I'd go out and and you know I feel like it's a continuous process writing it's not something that you do just when you're with your instrument right. in front of a page it's it's all the time so even when I was wandering around or even when I was out in the evening you know it was all part of the writing process really I feel like you know, as a songwriter or, or any writer, I'm sure it's just, you know, you're continually just filtering things through to use for your work. Did you, did those kinds of cultural experiences, you know, going to see music or poetry readings or whatever, were there any uh, particularly uh, stuck with you? Oh, I did see some incredible bands. I think, um, what's, oh, forget the name of the, the festival that happens in Central Park every summer. Is it just called Summer? Yeah, just the Summer Stage. Summer Stage, yeah. On some, uh, the Summer Stage, I saw some wonderful things. I saw a, a Tuvan throat singing band mm -hmm. called Yatkar. Mm -hmm. And I saw um, a Turkish band called the Kamkars, which mm -hmm. were absolutely incredible. I mean, they blew my mind. It was that music I had never heard before. And um, and going to some slam poetry was really, really interesting. You know, it's like a, almost a cross between poetry reading and, and music. Um, and it was just full of full of energy and very exciting to someone that's interested in wordplay. I really enjoyed some of that. Saw some incredible dance, mm -hmm. you know, better than, I'd, than I've ever seen. Just everything, really, was, was very exciting to me. And so very different to to my experiences of you know of investigating other thing, things here in England, it's I don't know. I think more than anything, I find a very supportive feeling amongst the other artists that I met. A real feeling of of, of supporting each other, and you know, com it was competitive, but it was in a supportive and positive way, if you know what I mean. And mm -hmm. in England, it can often be competitive but not in a not in a positive way and you know it's almost like people are willing other people to do badly or something and <laughs> i didn't feel that i thought just the opposite 
being there. Right. I don't know if that's just, you know, my English girl perspective on it or whether it is actually like that. I don't know. No, I can see what... I think it, I think in a lot of ways New York is like that simply because there's so much of everything. That's what my conclusion was. I just thought that there's just so much of everything that nobody gets kind of too precious about their own thing. Right. Because there's just so many other things going on. Everything's valid, you know. Everything right. is as good as each other. And right. Do you miss being in New York? I mean, are I you... do, actually. I have done ever since the day I left. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to get back. And I really, really, I'd love to live there. I really would. I mean, there's sort of, I do miss it terribly. And then any chance I, I get to try and make my way back there, I do. But right. I'm coming back in in July to produce a record for a girl, um, a girl called Tiffany Anders. And uh, I've never... I know pre- Tiffany. Do you? I do. Oh. Yeah, she's a friend of mine. Wow, really? Oh, that's, that's funny. That is fantastic. Yeah, well, when I was there, I made friends with her, and I saw her play quite a few times, and I just thought, she's really got something special. Yeah, and, um, she's great. And we became friends, and then she said, you know, she ever got enough money together, would I produce her record? And so she has, and, re- and I am. That's great. <laughs> yeah, it's just going to be me and her and an engineer, and uh, we're, we start on the 10th of July. Um, you know, I think her songs are really strong. I'm That's totally awesome. looking forward to it because cause I'm really, you know, really, really interested in going into producing as well. I'd like to do that more, so this is very exciting for me to be able to do that. I've A couple of other people had asked before but I'd never liked the music and I think you know you've got to really have your heart in it so this is the first thing that I've really thought this is great and I want to do. So I know that uh, that the last album you wrote a, a good portion of it on keyboards as opposed to on guitar mm-hmm. with, with these new songs was it was there a, a balance more heavily in one direction or? Yeah I think I I I was writing in a different way I was writing um on in a, on a, in a performance-based way. When mm-hmm. I was writing the songs, I wanted to know that I could stand up with one guitar and one voice and they'd work. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I was just standing, playing my electric guitar with my pedals and things and making the songs work at that stage. And they were all pretty much written like that. Um, I think there's just one that was written on a, on a keyboard. Right. And the rest are written to really to be performed solo if I needed to. And that's that's how I... You know, I think it's a good way to write, actually, because you end up with a very strong song at the bass level. And also, I'd intended originally to do a solo tour. I just thought, "Mm, you know, fancy going out on my own. So I was writing songs to do that with, and then it just kind of, eventually it worked out differently. But that's that's how I was writing. So I suppose there's a couple of songs on this new album that are so unlike anything I've ever written before that I almost can't recognize me. <laughs> and um, some people, you know, when I've played it, their reaction is, is, is that you? And it's... It is. <laughs> um, so, no, that's, that's... I'll be interested to see what people make of it, really. Of course, 18 years later, we know it all worked out pretty good for Stories from the City, Stories from the Sea. It was a critical and commercial success, spending 17 weeks on the UK Albums Chart and winning the coveted Mercury Prize the following year. Meanwhile, for me, it was just a massive honor to get to interview PJ Harvey at all. We have spoken since then and dared to dream that someday I might be able to tape one of these LSQ podcast interviews with her. Ooh boy, that would be amazing. 
And that brings us to the end of this episode. Thanks again to PJ Harvey and massive thanks to Lauren from Churches. Um, In the next couple of episodes, you'll hear interviews with Johnny Pierce from The Drums, Kevin Morby, Laura Jane Grace, Dan Reynolds from Imagine Dragons, Perfume Genius's Mike Hadrius, and more. I've got a lot of stuff already in the can. If you're not already a subscriber, however, let's do that right now, shall we? It'll make it easy to get the episodes right when they come out. And whenever you have feedback or questions, you can reach me on Twitter, at Jenny LSQ. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>